Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in as we uh, continue to work through some of the deep dives of church history. Tonight, uh, we get to deal with, uh, I think, one of the more fascinating ones that I've gotten to prepare. And uh, I hope you'll be able to track with us and uh, and keep your attention going. And, um, you know, I know, obviously, when we're dealing with church history and so forth, sometimes uh, people's concept of history and concept of how uh, all these things fit together sometimes is uh, is put to the test. But uh, I really hope that as we work through some of this stuff, you'll be able to appreciate uh, looking into claims and even the descriptions of the early church regarding itself. And so tonight, as we look into the Apostle Peter in the early church, uh, especially to the Apostolic Fathers, um, and this is this is really, really important for us to uh, to settle in on. Um, obviously, I will uh, uh, I'll be making reference to a number of different things uh, throughout this, and uh, how exactly we address certain things is going to be uh, in a spirit of grace. Uh, that is one of my goals here. Um, I know that there are people that are listening that are going to take some things personal. Um, I want to say on the front end, I don't mean them personal in any way. Um, I understand there there are certain things that Christians hold to on different branches of the church, uh, and that it hits really, really close to home uh, for some to discuss things about uh, the Apostle Peter. And uh, I know that I keep it in mind, um, but I'm also not going to have that inform how we learn and what we teach. It's just going to be, I keep it in mind. Um, so understand that none of that's an anticipated. And tonight, as we look into the nature of the Apostle Peter uh, in the early church, uh, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, I'll lay all my cards out on the table because I know... Uh, these types of episodes are found by people who do not typically listen to me. Um, and uh, so I'll lay out all my cards on the table on the front end. I am Protestant. I understand before anyone fills in the comments and, you know, uh, levels that claim against me as if I'm not aware of that. Uh, I am Protestant. Um, and so I'm going to be coming from that perspective. I do hold that scripture is more significant than uh, the magisterium or than the interpretations that we take on it. But having said that, my primary argument, even as a Protestant, uh, with regards to this, this is a church history class. My primary argument is not going to be coming from Scripture. In fact, not even my secondary ones. Um, and here, I'm not even looking to make forward an argument about Peter. I'm just looking to expose you to how the early church, especially the Apostolic Fathers, how they spoke uh, about Peter, what things that we can pull from uh, their story. Um, and it's very, very difficult to try to look at all of this without the significant number of lenses uh, throughout church history that we use to read both the Apostolic Fathers and any reference to Peter in the early days. So let's go ahead and get into this. When, when we're talking about the earliest church, especially the Apostolic Fathers, it is very helpful for us, I think, to uh, to take into account the reality that when we're talking about the earliest church, we really have to kind of uh, take our jumping off point from the book of Acts, because that is where um, all of this transition between the old covenant and the new covenant takes place. And it does so in a very, um, in a very specific way. 
And the book of Acts, uh, just it's it's one of the most astounding books in the scriptures because it it handles this reality of these 11 apostles and, you know, 100 some odd people with them in the upper room trying to grapple with the reality that Jesus has ascended, that Judas Iscariot has betrayed them and Christ, and they need to fill in the office of apostle for the 12th one. And then all of a sudden, the spirit of the Lord comes to the church and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, the salvation of Jews from all sorts of countries around the world are there in Jerusalem, having seen all of the events of Jesus of Nazareth, and then now witnessing the day of Pentecost, the rolling out of the church from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Um, and it is that story that the apostolic fathers continue. As, as we go through the book of Acts, we see Peter taking a very central role uh, in the earliest church. Now, I will simply note, he does not take the pastoral role in Jerusalem. He takes a central role in announcing and heralding and preaching of the gospel. Uh, God does remarkable things. Uh, the Holy Spirit does remarkable things through Peter, things that are, are really unlike anything else. Uh, or anyone else. I mean, th there are there are instances where uh, he's he's walking along and his shadow passes over someone, uh, and they are healed. That that's an incredible thing. There's there's really nothing quite like that. Um, we have uh, similar eccentricities of uh, Paul in the city of Ephesus later on in the book of Acts. But Peter, in the early parts of the book of Acts, takes a very central role. Uh, not only is he the one that's preaching on the day of Pentecost, explaining to all of the Jews gathered that this is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, but you also have healings, as we've mentioned before, uh, arrests and dealing with uh, the difficult management issues of the earliest church, Ananias and Sapphira being one of them, the deceit that they were uh, brought into, both of them. Um and then just through the word of the apostles, uh, the Holy Spirit putting to death those who would lie against him. Uh, remarkable stuff. Uh, his confrontations um, with uh, with uh, the, the uh, magician, what was his name? Simon, the sorcerer. His confrontations there with regarding to, you know, wanting to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And then this tremendous episode in the church's history. And that is the saving of Cornelius and his family. Peter is front and center for all of this. Peter is in Simon the Tanner's house. And the Lord lays down a sheet filled with animals that are outside of the old covenant. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, sir. No, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. You know, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. No. Don't, don't call anything unclean what I have made clean. Three times it does this. And Peter is confused, going, what, what in the world is what in the world is going on? And that confusion cons uh, considerably fills his mind as representatives from Cornelius' house come to him. And they, they invite him to the Roman centurion's house, and there he preaches to them, gives them the message of Jesus Christ, and Peter watches the church go from Jewish to 
worldwide. Not to say that Cornelius was the first person saved, but he is the first Gentile that the apostles got to watch be saved in such a manner as this. It is how the Holy Spirit chose to show that the church was not going to just be Jewish. It is how that the Holy Spirit showed that this is the manner in which that the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world, that you are going to be my witnesses to do all of this. You're going to be the ones preaching through all of this, but it is going to be God himself that is driving this. So that's what we're set up with in the book of Acts. We're set up with Peter as the preacher at the day of Pentecost, uh, healer, uh, preacher again, Cornelius, and um, and all the matters of thing handling the different uh, aspects of the early church uh, there in Jerusalem and and throughout uh, Israel. When uh, when we come to the Jerusalem Council, obviously we are dealing with the the ever present struggle in the Book of Acts of how do we handle the fact that Gentiles are becoming Christians. Um, how do we include them without the requirement of circumcision or with the requirement of circumcision? And obviously all of the uh, reasoning goes back to the the issue that it was found at Cornelius's house, which is the Holy Spirit came to them without circumcision, which means there is absolutely nothing in us that can forbid salvation or forbid the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles without making them Israelites first. And so there's this kind of remarkable role of Peter in the book of Acts. And then the whole kind of focus of the book of Acts shifts to the Apostle Paul. And I, I find this most helpful to understand in the context of the Apostolic Fathers, because you'll never have the gospel or even the Acts of the Apostles is never going to be focused on a single person. And the apostolic fathers will carry out that same habit. And so should we. The, the gospel is not told to us by one person. We do not have to trust just Matthew with the message of Christ. We do not just have to trust Mark, um, who we will learn again is, uh, is, according to the early church, recording a sermon of Peter's. You know, we don't have to just trust that Luke did all of his research well for Theophilus. We don't have to trust that John recalls all of this. Well, we have a multifocality of the story of the gospel told to us amongst the four of them. The same thing goes on in the book of Acts. We do not only have to trust that just Peter is, is uh, got everything under control. It is not one apostle that Christ sends. It is 12. And so the focus of the uh, Acts of the Apostles, plural, which is actually the name of the book, uh, goes is not just focusing on a central apostle, though it is addressing the reality of all of them, the first martyrs, the leaders in the church of Jerusalem, the leaders in the church of um, of Ephesus show up by the end of there. Uh, you have missionary journeys, uh, expansions of the gospel to Asia Minor, to Greece, to Rome, uh, even to Spain. You know, how all of this fits together is a swirl sometimes for Christians to figure out. And, you know, I can understand that as far as the book of Acts con is concerned, a lot of Christians will just kind of end their understanding of church history there and then go, you know, that's that's enough for me. And, you know, and I see I see the habit and um, 
I just did a quick perusing of of different ways that that uh, Protestant ministers or or church history uh, history of um, uh, Protestant church historians uh, address this issue, and primarily when when we're addressing this concept of what Peter's role in the church is, um, we stay in the scriptures. Now, I'm I'm a good Protestant. I I love studying the scriptures. I love stu- studying and seeing what's in there. But this is a church history class. And so my main interactions is not going to be in scripture regarding the nature of Peter's relationship to the early church. I want us to actually hear it from their own words. And this is something that I don't find very often in Protestant circles. And it's a little frustrating uh, and a little bit distressing, honestly, because uh, it kind of speaks to me of this, maybe an intimidation or a fear of what might be found. And uh, I hate it when things are out there that can be learned. Uh, and I don't want to fear those things. If I truly came to the Apostolic Fathers and I can see that from the earliest church onwards, there was an understanding of, of a primacy of Rome and the centrality of, of Peter's uh, reigning there uh, as, as, uh, as pastor and so forth. And, you know, a clear understanding of this from the earliest days. I'd have to challenge some of my assumptions. And so I can understand some people being intimidated by looking into this stuff, but let me assure you, it is worth reading and is worth looking into. When we get into the apostolic fathers, and by that terminology, I just want to go back and uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, the apostolic fathers are those that we would consider uh, having learned things straight from the apostles. They're, They're kind of this bridge between the apostles and the early church. And so you'll get some that will have been trained directly underneath one of the apostles, or uh, their church was founded, uh, as we will see tonight, um, by uh, the the apostles, or um, they, they've been around, whatever it is, it's, it's dealing with this period of history of about the year 70 up to late 100s, like maybe 160s, 170s. We're going to extend that out a little bit further um, and and look into that a little bit more. We'll see um, up to the 180s with Irenaeus. Um, but I want to I want to address all of these um, because there's a lot of claims that are made. And there's really no more single one person uh, in the New Testament outside of Christ that claims are made about uh, in the modern day, outside of Peter. And some of the claims regarding Peter um, have some historical grounding, but the vast majority of them, uh, I hope you're going to be able to see tonight, do not have the most ancient church's groundings whatsoever. Um, and I want you to see exactly what this is. So this is not a this is not a lecture that's going to be on the negation of claims that are made. Uh, I just want you to see it for yourself. Um, if you are wanting to read along, uh, this will be a little bit more difficult, but I will give you the uh, the references beforehand, um, and uh, I'll just go ahead and list those out right now um, so that you can, uh, if you want to go to earlychurchwritings.com or if you have a copy um, of the Apostolic Fathers or something like this, you'll be able to go look this up. Um, so obviously we have the Acts of the Apostles that's in your scripture. Uh, what I've been referencing. We're going to be referencing 1 Clement chapter 5. 
We are also going to be referencing Dionysius of Corinth, uh, which you probably won't find in your copy of the Apostolic Fathers unless it's really recent. Uh, we have quotations of him in Eusebius. So if you have a copy of Eusebius, you can follow along there. We only have about you know 10 lines from him anyway. So it's not really that hard. I don't have to give you a reference. It's just what he referenced there. And then uh, the very, very long work by Irenaeus called Against Heresies. Uh, and we will be in book three, chapters one, two, three, and 13. If you don't want to follow along in person uh, and you just want to listen, I promise to make it as follow alongable as I can. Um, but uh, keeping in mind that some of these things have pretty long texts, so you'll have to pay attention. So uh, you're going to do the work one way or the other, whether it's going and tracing these out and looking them up or by uh, by spending some time just listening and, and intentionally uh, hearing uh, what's going on. So let's kind of look into this. When, when we discuss the Apostolic Fathers, um, when, when I'm talking, when I'm focusing in on people like Clement or Dionys uh, uh, Dionysius of Corinth or, or, or Irenaeus, it, this is not to say these are the only ones that talk about Peter. The, Peter is mentioned all over the place because he's all over the place in the scriptures. He's always the first one in the list of the apostles. Peter is awesome and Peter is likable and Peter is hateable and Peter is relatable. Uh, everything about him I can see in myself uh, the 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 foot shaped mouth, the regrets, the the sorrow, the tears shed, the uh, you know trudge forward and then regret things. All of that I can see all of that in almost every Christian. And so when we read this the text about him in Scripture, and then we read that you know half the Book of Acts, a third to about half the Book of Acts, really kind of fronts his story and some of the things that God was doing through him, it shouldn't surprise us at all that the early church refer, uh, references him often. But it doesn't ever really just reference him just for his own sake, like Peter and what was handed down through him. It doesn't talk about him like that. And if you read the Apostolic Fathers, you'll actually see that the Apostolic Fathers very, very seldom do they refer to Peter by himself unless they are usually recounting one of his stories in scriptures from the um, either from the gospels or retelling what happened at Pentecost or in the first like half of the book of Acts um, or referencing his, his uh, book, first Peter. Um, and then later on second Peter as well. And that leads to some other issues and questions. We're not going to talk about that tonight. Almost every reference that you're going to run across regarding Peter as far as apostolic office is going to be told in tandem with Paul. It is like a, it is like a shorthand um, or, or uh, uh, just a common phrase, Peter and Paul or Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles. Ne never is Peter held up or never is Peter ever referred to as a representative of the entirety of the apostles. There's passing references like this, but there is no teaching on this at all. There, there's a place where you will see, you know, Peter talked about kind of as a, a representative of, of a Christian, but you, you'll see that about everyone you know, that has certain aspect to him. So, but when we're talking about the role of apostleship or when you're talking about the, the founding of churches and things like this, 
all the time. You will just, you'll be kind of overwhelmed how many times you'll run across references of Peter and Paul, Peter and Paul and the apostles. Uh, and I find this fascinating because boy, it really does follow in that same trajectory that the book of Acts is talking about. You have that exact breakdown in the whole book, Peter and Paul, right? You have this, you have this, uh, um, you have this progression of referring to this reality, Peter as the apostle to the circumcised, Paul as the apostle to the uncircumcised, Peter to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, and then Paul to the Gentiles. And obviously then how do we deal with the intersections of those? And that's very difficult. And so right there at the center of the book of Acts, you have the Council of Jerusalem, which deals with the issue, do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to follow Christ, the Jewish Messiah? And the answer to that is no, Christ is the savior, both of the Jews and of the Greeks. And so there's no dividing wall then between them with regards to salvation, because the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul are sent by the same Christ. And so the early church, it shouldn't really surprise us, is actually is, is actually describing this reality not only in the book of Acts, but in the way they just refer to the ministry of the gospel. It goes out to all the world. Uh, not that not that it goes out without plan, but it almost goes out indiscriminately. That that there is that there's unity, even though there's distinction. Peter is sent to the circumcised. Paul is sent to the uncircumcised, and yet we see them founding churches together. We'll see the references here in a second. I'll get you there. Christ. And this is how the Apostolic Fathers talk all the time. So if you've never read them, I'm just trying to get you familiarized with how they talk. Christ, then the apostles, and now the church leaders of our day, right? They all speak of this kind of logical succession. It is Christ, then it is the apostles, and now it is the leaders of our day. Now, as a Protestant, I'm going to look at this and I'm going to, you know, try to understand. I want to try to find legitimacy, just like every other Christian. I want to look back at this and I want to find legitimacy for the way I do church or the way that I see church polity or something like that. And I really want to keep all of that aside as best as we can, right? Whether you're Orthodox or Catholic or Lutheran or or Presbyterian or or Reformed Baptist or whatever the case may be, keep keep those things aside now and just let's look at the apostolic church for what it is. Christ, then the apostles, and now the church leaders of our day. In the early church, it was very easy for them to see this successive line, especially for the apostolic fathers. They knew people who knew the apostles, right? In the earliest days, they... They were the people who knew the apostles. When we come to Clement here in a second, he he knew Peter and Paul personally. So when we when we address some of these some of these aspects of it, how do we how do we kind of wrap our heads around this? It's not just because somebody knew somebody personally that that means they fully represent every single thing they taught. No, it doesn't give them that kind of authority, but or it doesn't give them that kind of accuracy. Let's just leave it at that. In the earliest church, in the Apostolic Fathers, they could they could trace their history, though, very easily. It would be just as easy for me to trace back a church that I'm serving in and just how many pastors has it been since the Apostles? And, and think about it this time, right? The year is 2023. The Apostolic Fathers say they'd be writing in, you know, 
let's say the early 100s, so 120. So it would be equivalent to trying to trace back your own church's history today to about 1940. That's very doable. And that you can get back to almost Christ by comparison, right? And for the apostles, it would have been several generations later. I mean, some of the apostles would have only just died in the 70s, right? Do you know pastors that were pastoring churches in the 70s? If you've lived any amount of time or anything like this, you would say, yeah, I do. I, I know this person. Or you'd be, you know, one generation removed from that. That's that's how close to this we're talking about. And so when when you're that close to it, this concept of apostolic succession is very easy to trace back because you can claim a legitimacy for your church based on this because it's really straightforward. You go, we, we're not just some crazy sect that arose in... Um, in Antioch or in Jerusalem or in Rome or in Athens or Corinth or Thessalonica. We we were founded by this apostle. Here has been our bishops slash elders since then, leading up to today. And you will see this is just a normal way to refer to things because everyone can attest to that. It's only been like two pastors ago. Uh, it really wasn't that hard to trace this out, especially since a lot of them in the early church saw their appointment to uh, bishop as a lifelong uh, claim. And so you would be there until your death. And so you're not talking about like two years here or three years there or something like this. You, you are talking about you are there until you die. And so it is, uh, or you know, and then you would hand off responsibilities to the next bishop of the city. But again, also the churches were small enough that you have a main bishop of a city and you would have elders and that kind of a thing uh, very much in the early part. There very naturally arose that concept of succession because you could trace the church's founding to a specific apostle. In fact, um, it really becomes such a part of the culture of establishing one's church based on which apostle founded you uh, that churches all over the started making claims like this. And some of them so anachronistic and so later on in history that it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but that doesn't stop anything. History is a fun thing. Um, so some of the claims are true that this apostle founded this church and that one founded that church. And some are exaggerated and some are bogus. And that makes it very difficult because people will refer to them uh, in much the same way. And it's very hard to draw a line. I'll give you an instance. Um, for any of you who have gone through our church history course, you know that Constantinople uh, as a city was founded from scratch by the emperor of Rome in the mid uh, in the mid in mid 300s in order to bring legitimacy to that after the fact, somebody taught that Philip, the apostle, actually preached in a nearby area, therefore giving it legitimacy. Okay, that's what I mean by anachronistic, out of order. That That's not reality. But there are those who would look at that. And again, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to get into those claims tonight. I know I have uh, some Orthodox friends who, who listen to this as well. I don't, I'm not trying to bring any difficulty to that claim of, of Constantinople, only to say those claims were not made before the existence of such a thing. And then trying to back up and establish something 
um, I don't I don't believe is necessary. I don't think the the scriptures make that necessary, nor do us. But history is as as it does. It it <laughs> it establishes difficulties for us to work through, regardless of such. Um, there there was an undeniable rise in the desire for many churches to establish the legitimacy as being founded by an apostle. Um, now, in the modern era, we're not used to that at all because it's nigh impossible. It's been almost 2,000 years demonstrating legitimacy through an unbroken line of succession of bishops going back to an apostle would indeed be quite a feat. Um, but uh, there are definitely those who try it. Let's get into this. And then we'll come back to some of those references, right? Let's go to First Clement. That should have provided you enough time to go and find First Clement and, and spell it out. First Clement. <clears throat> now, if you're not aware who Clement is, he was a bishop in Rome. You say, what? Yeah. Uh, whether wh whether that means he's just one of the elders in Rome or that a bishop is an elder as well. Uh, a lot of people have all sorts of discussion. It's my class. So I'm going to teach you what I think it is, right? I think the simplest explanation is usually the best. A bishop would be, at this time period in history, there would be one for the city because there is one church in the city because that's kind of how that culture worked, especially in the time of the Roman Empire. And so you would have a bishop of a city like that, and you would have elders alongside him, but he would be the main teacher of the church. So you would get someone like Timothy is the bishop of Ephesus, but then there's, as we see in the book of Acts, already there's elders of the uh, of the church in Ephesus as well that, that serve as overseers. Um, I believe uh, in the earliest church the normal way that this worked out was that there was a main teacher of a church that was not over the elders of the church, but was one of the elders of the church. Um, and Clement was undeniably a bishop in Rome. Uh, he was not the first bishop of Rome, nor the second, uh, nor the third. Well, he might have been third. We'll see. Um, and he is writing in the mid-90s. So the mid-90s, very early on. The mid-90s, in chapter 5 of, uh, of of what's called First Clement. Now, let me tell you about this letter just a little bit, because it helps to get kind of the background of this one. Clement is a pastor, for lack of a better term, bishop in Rome, or overseer, however you want to refer to that, um, is, is serving in this church in Rome, and he is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. Some people have even, like, tongue-in-cheek referred to this as like third corinthians because it's again trying to write to the church in corinth and and uh tweak some things this one is nowhere near as harsh as first corinthians obviously um but this is a letter from the pastor of the church in rome to the church in corinth because the church in corinth being the church in corinth uh had kicked out all of its elders and deacons <laughs> so uh there was a let's just say a leadership struggle going on in the church in Corinth and Clement is writing up to them and going, look, if repentance has happened and all of this type of thing, just reestablish everything and move on. You can't just do this. It doesn't work like that. You don't just get to kick out uh, all the leaders again, uh, appealing to a number of things. First Clement is a wonderful uh, letter to read. Uh, it is, it is certainly worth the whole read, but we are here looking for what is the role of Peter? Now, if anyone's going to be familiar with Peter, um, especially with some of the claims that are made about Peter, uh, spending so much time in Rome, it would have been Clement, right? 
So let's look at this. Let's look at how these uh, references work. Chapter five, right? No less evils have arisen from the same source in the most recent times. The martyrdom of Peter and Paul, but not to dwell upon ancient examples, let us come to the most recent spiritual heroes. Let us take the noble examples furnished in our own generation. Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church have been persecuted and put to death. Let us set before our eyes the illustrious apostles. Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labors, and when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. One of the things that we do learn about Peter in the early church, and this is from the earliest reference that we have here, is that he suffered martyrdom. Now, you'll hear probably sometimes in passing, in, um, in oh, whether it's sermons or Bible studies or so, Sunday schools or whatnot, that, uh, that Peter, you know, according to tradition, suffered martyrdom. He was crucified upside down and stuff. The crucified upside down stuff, that's that's 150 years into the future. That that That's all a tradition much later on. That he suffered martyrdom is something that we learned from First Clement from firsthand account is something that truly happened. Where it happened, Clement doesn't tell us. Um, we do infer from Clement that it may have happened in Rome, especially since he is lumping Peter and Paul together. Um, this would have been 30 years after the fact, but Clement knew Peter and Paul personally. Um, and so that's a, that's more of a, more of an interesting bypass to that, but that's the one first thing that we learn about him from the apostolic fathers, as far as for, uh, anything outside of scriptural references and the things that Peter did. This is one of the first things we learn about him is that he was martyred, uh, and most likely in Rome, though we're not entirely sure. Um, one of the things that I want to be really clear about here is that we really can't be clear about all of this here, right? I, I've heard people be so dogmatic on this side and so dogmatic on the other side. My goodness, Peter, he spent 25 years in Rome and all this things that we can't possibly know from history. Then on the other side, I hear, uh, you know, usually you'll get the separation between Catholics and Protestants, Right. You know, he was totally there, everything, you know, you know, ruled all this kind of stuff. On the Protestant side, it'll be, oh my goodness, he was never there, nothing ever happened. He didn't even go to Rome. Maybe he visited it once by accident. Both of those extremes do not come from the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, you can read them for yourself. They're freely available online. Go and read them. You do not have any concept of some pastoring of of the church in Rome in the Apostolic Fathers. You just don't have it. But you do have references to his connection to Rome. We're going to see some of them as well here. And you do have direct reference to his martyrdom here, which should not be passed over lightly. We know that Paul was martyred. We also now know that Peter was martyred, both, again, from, it seems, firsthand accounts uh, and things that we actually have continued on in history down to us. You say, well, how do you know there's connections to that? Well, this is the nice thing about history is what things are preserved for us are ours to study and know. And so when we pull apart uh, some of the references that we find, now that that's a pretty quick reference there in First Clement, but it's something that's worth noting. But let's go on further, right? Let's go to Dionysius of Corinth. Now, Dionysius of Corinth uh, if you're familiar, is from around the year 170. You go, wait, wait a second. What are we skipping over like 
75 years for. Because as far as for definitive references that we actually have, that we learn anything new that's not in scripture, that's not just a quotation or a retelling of his story uh, from scripture. Um, obviously, if you read some of these uh, church fathers, you'll see that the sheer quantity of scripture that they just quote all the time uh, is really just astounding. There's there's so many things that they'll say about uh, the scriptures and then kind of apply it to the modern day, right? Or, or their, their modern day. And so they'll they'll look at all of these types of claims. They'll look at um, you know what the scriptures say, and then they'll draw out their conclusions out of that. And so they'll refer to Peter in place, or they'll refer to a story or something that he said or something he taught in First Peter or Second Peter. But as far as for what we learn about his life after the close of the Book of Acts, very very few details. Actually, astonishingly few details. And so there, while there's several. Uh, church fathers uh, in this time period that are writing, there's really, as far as for things to learn about Peter, very, very little um, that I could even come across with regards to this stuff. Obviously, the, the Apostolic Fathers has a lot of words, a lot of topics, and a lot of chapters. Uh, I did my absolute best in, in solidifying things. I do have references from, um, you know, uh, pseudo Ignatian letters and stuff like this, but we'll set that aside for tonight. Dionysius of Corinth. Let's go to his references here. This is about the year 170. So again, now we are not first generation. This is not that we're, we're a hundred years after the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. Um, and, and here's the fun thing too. Dionysius of Corinth, um, his references are only maintained for us in Eusebius's histories. They are not. They are not what you would say from Dionysius of Corinth. They're secondhand quotations by somebody else. But it's good we have them anyway. Um, and so I'd like to read to you this little section here. It's only. It's only a couple sentences long. Uh, Dionysius of Corinth writes to the church in Rome. Now notice how many back and forths we have between Rome and Corinth, uh, and I think that's fascinating. Uh, Dionysius of Corinth, uh, the, the bishop in Corinth, writes to the church in Rome. He uh, encourages them this way. He says, therefore, you, referring to the whole church in Rome, also have by such admonition joined in close union the churches that were planted by Peter and Paul, that of the Romans and that of the Corinthians. For both of them went to our Corinth and taught us in the same way as they taught you when they went to Italy, and having taught you, they suffered martyrdom at the same time. End of reference. Now that is an incredible uh, bit of history that we get there. What can we pull about Peter on this? One, as far as for Dionysius of Corinth, as quoted by Eusebius is concerned, not only did Peter found the church in Corinth and the church in Rome, but, or excuse me, not only did Paul do that, which we know from the New Testament, but so did Peter. The founding of the church to the Romans and the founding of the church to the Corinthians. Both of them, he says explicitly, went to Corinth and taught in the same way that they taught when they went to Italy, having taught you. In other words, the founding of the church in Rome, the founding of the church in Corinth were both done by both Peter and Paul. 
and then they both suffered martyrdom at the same time, according to Dionysius of Corinth, as quoted by Eusebius. That's an incredible amount of information. Actually, quite a few things can be extrapolated out of that. Uh, one is that they suffered martyrdom at the same time, and we have been on fairly good grounding uh, when Paul was martyred, which means we can pretty much with good authority say when Peter was martyred now too. And then we can also establish out that it wasn't just one of them that founded the church in Corinth, nor just one of them that founded the church in Rome, but that both of them were involved in both of those churches. Fascinating stuff. When we, when we move forward in time just a little bit more, we get even more details about this. About 10 years after Dionysius of Corinth, a man uh, named Irenaeus in the year 180 writes a very huge book. Uh, if you really want to read through this, uh, you're welcome to do so. Uh, it's called Against Heresies. And Irenaeus, um, again, removed from the events by well over 100 years. Sometimes his grasp of history is a little bit tenuous. Um, so, you know, we're, we're at a time period in history where there's, there's a good deal of uh, I heard this and we got this and we had to recreate that. You know, something that's 120 years ago, especially in the ancient world, it's kind of hard to establish exactly how this works uh, or exactly how it works, right? Irenaeus, uh, I'll give you an example. Irenaeus actually misrepresents how old Jesus was when he died. He, he seems to think both for textual reasons and for historical reasons that Jesus lived until he was at least 50 years old, right? Uh, again, from where we're sitting, we can see that and we go, well, that's that, that kind of, not kind of, that, that's not in keeping with a scriptural witness, uh, nor for well-documented history. We can recreate more accurately than Irenaeus was able to do so. Um, and so again, now that should not give us a degree of pride. That should just give us a, you know, a sense of camaraderie actually, because none of us see everything perfectly. Um, but again, you know, we just keep that in mind. It just kind of informs, uh, some of the difficulties of the time that we're dealing with, but let's look at his references and views of Peter, because he has actually quite a lot to say. Uh, and we're going to spend, uh, the bulk of the rest of our time working with Irenaeus in against heresies. So, so far, we're we're 115 years after the death of of Saints Paul and Peter and we just learned that they were martyred that they founded the church in Rome and the church in Corinth together and both suffered martyrdom at the same time that's essentially all we have so let's go into this against heresies by Irenaeus book 3 chapter 1 we're going to be in book 3 for the whole thing so just be there uh, you can go to early, uh, what is it called? Earlychristianwritings.com and actually look for Irenaeus and then go to Against Heresies. Uh, easy to follow along uh, there if you want to do that. And it's always good to plug them there. They they did great work and they've maintained that for years. So they should have some recommendation, uh, rec uh, recommendation there. All right. Book three, chapter one. Quote, we have learned from none others the plan of our salvation. Then from those who, uh, through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. 
For it is unlawful to assert that they preached before they possessed perfect knowledge, as some do even venture to say, boasting themselves as improvers of the apostles. For after our Lord rose from the dead, the apostles were invested with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came down upon them. They were all filled with his gifts and had perfect knowledge. They departed to the ends of the earth, preaching the glad tidings of the good things sent from God to us and proclaiming the peace of heaven to men who indeed do all equally and individually possess the gospel of God. Listen to this. Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. <laughs> While Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church, after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. That's the gospel of Mark. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Now, there's all sorts of cool historical stuff here, uh, but let's just focus in as best as we can just on Peter. What do we learn in here? Um, as much as I love to talk about Matthew, uh, and, you know, writing the gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, I'm going to set that one aside. Peter and Paul, while they were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church after the departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter did also hand down to us in writing that which had been preached by Peter. I this, this is <laughs> honestly, this is pretty exciting stuff to read because, when when we're looking at this now we have we have secondary reference um we have a second reference to the fact that peter and paul were both preaching in rome and founding that church there in historical studies we call that corroboration uh that is a that is a good thing to read that is a good thing especially if we're trying to figure out what was peter doing in the early church according to the apostolic fathers well what he was doing was he was preaching in rome towards the end of his life with Paul and founding the church there. They were laying the foundations of the church. Uh, after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter, which means when you're reading the gospel of Mark, according to Irenaeus, you are reading Peter's presentation of the gospel, which is cool. Actually, I mentioned this when I was preaching through the gospel of Mark some years ago that this is essentially a sermon or or an evangelistic sermon given by Peter. And, and Mark, uh, John Mark, uh, lays it out uh, for him. Really fascinating stuff. I find that awesome. So what do we have? We have martyrdom. We have Peter and Paul working in tandem together in Corinth, in Rome, founding the churches wherever they go. And we also have that the gospel of Mark is the disciple and interpreter of Peter and handed down to us what was preached by Peter in the gospel of Mark. So fascinating stuff. Let's keep going. Book three, chapters two and three. Let's just do chapter two first. Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon upon the succession of all the churches. Uh, this is referring to... So let me go out a quotation. This is referring to um, uh, the succession of different ministers, uh, bishops, excuse me. Let me use their term. Uh, bishops or overseers 
going through history from the apostles down to them to that day. He says, so he says, since it would be very tedious in such a book as this to reckon upon uh, up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who in whatever manner, whether by an evil self-pleasing or vainglory, by vainglory or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings. We do this, I say, by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great and very ancient and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. As also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes down to our time by means of the succession of the bishops. Quote, again, for it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority, that is, the faithful everywhere, inasmuch as the apostolic tradition has been preserved continuously by those faithful men who exist everywhere. Now, that's chapter two. Again, we have the reinforcement that Peter and Paul are working hand in hand in founding the church in Rome. Uh, and, and so when it, when it comes down to um, some of the references that I have seen people make um, that are in my camp in the Protestant world, They'll they'll just go like you know oh there's there's no indication that Peter um, you know had anything to do with the church in Rome yes there is yes there is he's an apostle now if you're going to go and say he's therefore the Pope of Rome we got another problem because now we've got Peter and Paul referred to identically in their role of establishing the church in Rome so for my Catholic friends don't think I'm going to that side either. We're just going to stick with what is described in the Apostolic Fathers for tonight during this lesson. Peter and Paul are working hand-in-hand to found the church in Rome. They're working hand-in-hand to found the church in Corinth. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is it that we have references to to, uh, how this is all to work out? When they express out the the nature of the succession of the bishops, right? Well, he continues on and answers some of these questions in chapter three. Look at this. When I say chapter, their chapters are just basically long paragraphs. So book three, chapter three, look at this. The blessed apostles then, having founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus, the office of the episcopate. Of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistles to Timothy. Now stop there for a second. You may look at that and go, what, 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 what just happened? Well, what just happened is that the apostles did what the apostles did, which is they would found churches wherever they went and that they would appoint faithful men to preach the gospel. Linus would be the one that they gave the Episcopate of Rome to. Linus in uh, any list of um of, of those who would claim, you know, papal office from, from uh, Peter forward is considered the second Pope because Peter is considered the first Pope, but no such role is given to him in the apostolic fathers, no such references. And I would, I would challenge anyone who thinks there is show the references in the apostolic fathers to any pastoral role like that of Peter alone in the church in Rome. It doesn't exist. His his role in Rome is undeniable that it does have a role, but his is equivalent to and in tandem with Paul. Because again, they're apostles, one to the circumcised, one to the uncircumcised. 
And not to say that that's all that they ever did, but there was a great cadre of, of Jews in Rome. There was a great cadre of, obviously, Gentiles in Rome. And Rome, again, don't miss, is, is the capital city of the entire Roman Empire. All roads lead there, remember? Uh, the, the, the value of Rome, the wealth of the church in Rome, there was all sorts of things going on that when, when there was famines elsewhere in the world, whether there was, there was poor in Corinth or in Jerusalem or what the case may be, I mean, you're talking about the Washington DC, if you're in America of the Roman empire, or you're talking about the Paris of France, or, you know, it's Rome, it's the capital, it's where the emperor is, it's where, uh, the Senate is, it's where everything is. And so if there's going to be a founding of the churches there, you're going to have references to both of the apostles as expressed here in every single instance in the apostolic fathers. It is not just Peter, it is Peter and Paul, every one of them with regards to the founding of this. And then as they do everywhere they go, whether it's Ephesus or Thessaloniki or Philippi or Corinth, they hand it to the bishop and the elders because both are present there. People can argue forever and a day, you know, well, is bishop one elder or there are multiple elders or no, bishop is uh, at one point for one, you know, city church is a singular. So it does seem that there is a specific office, main teacher, main preacher, whatever the case may be. But he's not ruling, that's not happening, without the elders. The elders are there, and, and even Peter in 1 Peter 5, as an apostle, refers to himself as a fellow elder. So elder seems to be the catch-all term for all the leaders of the church that aren't specifically deacons, and so which would be servants. So when you're talking about this, at least in the way that the terms are used here, and we're tr I'm trying my, my best to, to, to rid all of us of the, the lenses that we read these things with and just go, what seems to be the case is that there are elders, undeniably, in, in all of these churches, and then there's a bishop that seems to be the main representative or the main mouthpiece of the church. That's what it seems to be, open to different interpretations. Put them in the comments if you don't like me anymore. That's okay, too. But it does seem to be that because... Um, when the when the expression is put out then of succession is we keep on getting these lines of bishops these these overseers that are <coughs> uh, uh, quote faithful men right so watch watch how watch how this is described out by uh, Irenaeus and again historical perfect accuracy aside let's just look at this. He says, the blessed apostles then, having founded and built up the church, again, blessed apostles, it's it's always plural. It's always Peter and Paul when talking about this, no matter who you're reading. Uh, committed into the hands of Linus, the office of the Episcopate. Of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistles of Timothy. If you're not familiar, this first pastor of Rome is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, and I, I, I would venture to guess that most of you did not even know that. And so I actually just want to read that. Uh, while I'm sitting here, let me pull up my Bible really quick. Second Timothy chapter four, um, verses well, 19 to, uh, where am I? Yes. 19 to 22. 
let's just read the final greetings. Um, Second Timothy chapter four. Again, get the get the setting. Uh, Paul is in Rome. He is in prison, uh, awaiting what will be his execution. And he is writing to Timothy, who is the bishop in Ephesus, along with the elders in Ephesus. There's not just one person in charge of the whole church. It doesn't work like that. Uh, but Timothy is the bishop in Ephesus. And so he's he's writing them. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila, the household of Onesiphorus. And then he passes along some of this. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. That Linus right now, right there. And again, Paul is in Rome. That Linus is the bishop of Rome at the time that he is writing this. Or at least, okay, I can say this. It is the same person, whether he was actually in that role of, of uh, bishop of Rome yet or not. Um, some people will take issue with and argue with. Um, I don't think there's any way to really work around that. We know that Linus had that role. Whether or not he had that role before Peter died is a question that uh, oh, some people that aren't me can wrestle with uh, because it kind of it really just depends on the lens in which you're <laughs> addressing this question with. So, but here we have Linus showing up right here uh, in accordance with what Irenaeus says here uh, of this Linus. Paul makes mention in the epistles to Timothy. Uh, to him, in other words, to Linus, succeeded uh, Anacletus, and after him, in the third place from the apostles, Clement was allotted the bishopric. Stop. Again, uh, and that will be the same Clement that we just read from his chapter 5 uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. So we see we see a very interesting thing come out of all of this. One, we start to have this idea of an office of a bishop, which seems to be one of the elders of the churches. We see that come up in the Book of Acts. We see that come up even in the early um, in the in, in the early traditions of the church as well, as far as these offices are concerned. But there is a primary um, bishop, if you will call it that, or one that actually holds the responsibility either of representing the church as a singular person or of, uh, of a responsibility, uh, so-called, uh, to this. And so with regards to the church in Rome, we have clear testament from Irenaeus that we are looking at Linus as the first, Anacletus, and then after him, quote, the third place from the apostles, Clement, was allotted the bishopric. He says, this man, meaning Clement, uh, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have been preaching, uh, might to have been said as having the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears and their traditions ever before his eyes. Nor was he alone in this, for there were still many remaining that had received instructions from the apostles. In the time of this Clement, no small dissension having occurred among the brethren at Corinth, the church in Rome dispatched a most powerful letter to the Corinthians. Pause. That's first Clement. We were just reading from it. Let's go back to this. Exhorting them to peace and renewing their faith and declaring the tradition which it had lately received from the apostles, proclaiming the one God, omnipotent, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of man, 
who brought on the deluge and called Abraham, who led the people from the land of Egypt, who spoke with Moses, set forth the law, sent the prophets, and who was prepared fire for the devil and his angels. From this document, whosoever chooses to do so may learn that he, the father uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, was preached by the churches and may also understand the apostolic tradition of the church. Since this epistle is of older date than these men who are now propagating falsehood. Pause. That's where uh, Irenaeus, again, this is his book called Against Heresies. He is arguing that these newfangled teachers that don't know what in the world they're talking about are not consistent with what the apostles gave us. Okay, back to it. Unpause. Since this epistle is of older date than these men who are now propagating falsehood and who conjure into existence another God beyond the creator and the maker of all things, to this Clement there's uh there succeeded uh Averistus, Alexander followed Averistus, then sixth from the apostles named Sixtus was appointed, after him Telesphorus, uh, who was gloriously martyred, then Hyginus, after him Pius, then after him Anacetus. Soter, having succeeded Anacetus, uh Eleutherius does now in the twelfth place from the apostles hold the inheritance of the episcopate in this order. And by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. And this is most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith, which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. Again, that's the end of that quote. Again, we have this understanding that we still live in this time period in the mid to late second century, uh, mid to late 100s, where we can trace back, and it's getting harder, right? Uh, tracing back 12 pastors ago, is is it's getting difficult. Uh, you, you're having to list them all out, list them all out. And in fact, we actually even have references to people going out and going, wait a second, let me see your list here. Okay, you have the same ones. Or, oh, whoop, I missed that one. That kind of stuff goes on. And so here we'll have this uh, retelling of this and saying, um, especially in a refutation of heresies, in order for the protection of these things, this, it's not only did the apostles uh, choose Linus and set him up uh, with the episcopate or the bishopric as far as for um, how Irenaeus is talking about this, but that he, serving his whole time there, then passed it on to a faithful man. And then he, having served his time, passed it on to a faithful man named Clement, who wrote about all this kind of stuff and is not consistent with what these new false teachers are teaching. And then that continued all the way to today. And in Irenaeus's concept gives legitimacy uh, to the claim that what they are currently teaching is not in any way wrong. At a later point in that book, uh, against heresies in chapter 13. If you're following along, go ahead and turn there. Under the heading, the reputation of the opinion that Paul was the only apostle who had knowledge of the truth. That's, they have long chapter titles. Um, he says that regarding the Marcionites, which again, if you're not familiar with that, go look up Marcion and his teachings. Uh, or you can just listen to this quick recap. Uh, quote, with regard to those, the Marcionites, uh, who alleged that Paul alone knew the truth and that to him the mystery was manifested by revelation. Let Paul himself convict them when he says that one and the same God wrought in Peter 
for the apostolic uh for the apostolate of the circumcision and in himself meaning paul for the gentiles peter therefore was an apostle of that very god who was whose was also paul and him whom peter preached as god among those of the circumcision and likewise the son of god did paul declare also among the gentiles and again uh finish with quote again we have the apostolic fathers backing up what the scriptures claim about this is the reality that Peter and Paul had two completely different ministries that were parallel and that were working together. Uh, and so we see that the founding of the church in Corinth, and then very importantly, the church and the capital of the empire in Rome was founded by both of them. Both of them suffered martyrdom there. Both of them taught there. But Peter's main responsibility was to the circumcised, and Paul's was to the uncircumcised. He says, does that mean they're preaching different gospels? No, it means they had different mission fields, and sometimes they overlapped, and they happened to overlap in the same city, even unto martyrdom, which is awesome. An awesome part of the church's history. One that more people should know, hence we're teaching it. When we when we talk about all of this kind of stuff, it's it's hard for us to to assess how in the world to think about all of this, um, because here is kind of where some of this ends. And so you're looking at this and going, well, as far as the apostolic fathers are concerned, you know, there's not really a great deal of references to Peter and his you know massive role in the early church and stuff like this. It's like, well, we have huge instances of of Peter's role in the early church, and that's the Book of Acts. And then we have a very few references amongst hundreds and hundreds of pages, and I've read almost all of them to you, of, of anything whereby Peter is not just being quoted or retelling a story that we know in Scripture or whatnot, or quoting his first Peter uh, or second Peter. Here, as far as the history after the book of Acts, is pretty much everything we have from the Apostolic Fathers. And what do we learn from it? Well, we learn that he was indeed in Rome at some point. He did preach there. He did help establish the the first bishopric there. According to Irenaeus, Paul, uh, Peter and Paul were not serving as pastors in the church in Rome uh, or even as, as, as permanent elders in any way, but they were establishing Corinth. They were establishing Rome. They were working tandem, and it seems that one of them worked with Gentiles and the other one worked with Jews. Why is that a problem? It's not a problem. It's, it's just straight up what they were doing. And why Corinth? And then why Rome? We don't have full answers for that. But we do have that that's what was going on. Sounds great. No problem. No argument. You say, well, you know, I know that there's, there's sides of the church that claim that, you know, Peter is founding the church in Rome and serving as its first pope. Um, now, again, I can make scriptural arguments against that concept, but the, the burden of proof really does lie on those who are making that claim. Uh, and neither the scriptures nor the apostolic fathers know anything of the office of Pope. Uh, it, it, even if you could claim that the, the Bishop of Rome uh, is, would be just the only title for the Pope in uh, at that time period, you don't have any references to Peter fulfilling any kind of special bishop role or Episcopal role in Rome at all, in any unique way. 
And in every single quotation and every single thing that he does in Rome, including martyrdom, including founding the church and everything else, Paul does as well. And on top of that, Paul writes an entire letter to the church in Rome on top of that, which again, if Peter had written that, it would be claimed as proof of his, you know, his pastoral role or whatnot. But now that Paul does it, we don't even mention it, right? But I mean, the reality is there is nothing in the apostolic fathers and there is nothing in scripture that claims such a thing and that kind of relationship to the city of Rome. That is something that comes afterwards. Um, and again, the, the burden of proof really does rest on those who make that kind of anachronistic claim that kind of gets spread about quite a lot. Uh, and the idea that all of the apostles' authority coalesce into a single apostle, um, I'm going to say just as a pastor, is theologically problematic at at best, and it's also historically unfounded. Um, you, you don't have ever a reference that there is just one apostle in which everything is. That, that was the teaching of Marcion regarding the Apostle Paul. Everyone else is wrong. Only this apostle is right. And, and, and even the selection of this apostle over that apostle and this one founded my church, okay, that wasn't unique to Rome. It wasn't unique to uh, Constantinople. It wasn't unique to Antioch or um, even to Cairo, you know, or the Ethiopian church or the Indian church uh, for Thomas, like, or, or James going out to um, Spain. Like this, this kind of stuff, these types of claims were made all over the place. And a lot of them had kind of just, you know, pittered away with time. But the concept of Peter being the founder and first pastor of the church in Rome is something that continues to live on in, well, mythology. Because as far as for scripture saying any such thing, and then beyond that, because I know um, some of my brothers and sisters in in the Catholic uh, faith as well are going to come at me with, it doesn't come, it doesn't have to come from Scripture. It comes from tradition. I just read you the tradition. It's not in there either. The Apostolic Fathers didn't know anything of this. They knew the first Pope, if you want to use that terminology. They knew the first Bishop. I'll use their term uh, of Rome was Linus, and that Peter and Paul had an equal and distinct role in as apostles founding not just the church in Rome, but also the church in Corinth, the same time period, and both of them suffering martyrdom at the same time. That is what the apostolic fathers say. This idea that Peter is being the one with the keys or the one upon whom the church is founded, while it is an old belief, sure, um, really, I want you to hear from the founder of Latin Christianity himself, Tertullian which uh, would be writing about 30, 35 years after Irenaeus. Tertullian, um, a Latin church father, and the first place where we will start getting this kind of idea that, um, you know, the keys of the kingdom of heaven were given to Peter. Um, But I want you to hear how he talks about it, because it does not match how the Latin church talks about this. Uh, The reference is Tertullian. If you're familiar how, with how the church fathers are, and we're, we're five minutes from the end here, so bear with me. Uh, the reference to Tertullian is found in 3.643. Uh, that is uh, Tertullian in the uh, Antonician Fathers, volume three, page 643. I want you to see this. Quote, For though you think heaven is still shut, remember that the Lord left here to Peter and then through him to the church, the keys of heaven. 
which everyone who has been here put to the question and also made confession will carry with him. I shall send before me fine documents to be sure. Here he refers to virtuous life, etc. I shall carry with me excellent keys, the fear of them who kill the body only, but to not, but not against the soul. I shall hold out against the greater powers who yielded, uh, who yielded to the lesser. I shall deserve to be at length let in, though now shut out. Unquote. What does he mean? His understanding of Jesus giving the keys to Peter was that it was meant to give to Peter as one first in line, obviously, as far as the apostles. If you're going to get the main three ones, Peter, James, and John, and then it comes down to one, it's Peter. Does that mean he's the, the head of the church of Rome? No, it, it means he's the closest one to Christ. Does it mean that he has some huge special role? Yeah, kind of, he does. But what are we learning from Tertullian here? That the keys that were given to Peter was to go through him to the whole church. How so? It is the gospel. And so you ask the question, you know, who's right? When Jesus is giving the keys to Peter, who's right? Is it the Catholics or the Protestants? Both. According to Tertullian, he was giving it to Peter. And then we see before the gospels even close out that he actually gives them to all the apostles and then we find in the opening of the uh, of the book of Acts that Peter is the first one to preach the gospel. And from there, the keys of the kingdom go out everywhere that the message goes. Because what do we see here? What do we see how Tertullian refers to it? Not only did the Lord give them to Peter, but through him to the whole church, the keys to it. And he says, what, what is this key to? How, how, who has it? He says, everyone who has been here, uh, who has been here put to the question and also made confession will carry these keys with him. He says, upon his death, he sh I shall carry with me excellent keys, Tertullian says. Uh, the fear of them who kill the body only, but to nod against the soul, I shall hold out against the greater powers who yielded to the lesser. I shall deserve to be at length let in, though now shut out. In other words, I bear the keys myself, Tertullian says. Now, Tertullian is not a bishop in Rome or any such thing. He views this as the gospel itself. Who is it that has these keys? Whoever bears the gospel is led into heaven. Now, here I'm going to be a little bit more terse on this. The Roman Catholic concept of the papacy of Peter comes from a time later than even Tertullian. In order to establish their claim of legitimacy to a place of primacy, not of honor, but of authority. I don't have any problem you wanting to honor an ancient church. I do. I This is why I read these things. I love this stuff. But as far as for the claim of primacy and we're going to be in charge of the whole world church, it doesn't even make any sense for a bishop in Rome to be doing that. There, there's equal bishoprics throughout the world and there's, there's places of honor, but then there's supposed to be a respect amongst all of them. Regardless of such, I'm not going to get hugely into that. It was necessary to have Peter to be the bishop of Rome in their concept and then pass his key authority on to the next pope, Pope Linus. But see, that's the problem, is none of that is substantiated in the history that we have. 
Besides that, we have equal, if not even more case, to argue for Paul's involvement in the Church of Rome is more significant than that of Peter. But that is a story for another time. I do hope that this has been a helpful episode for you all. I know it's what is an enjoyable one for me to read um, hundreds of pages to get through. Um, but I'm very grateful uh, that you stuck along with me this time. And uh, I hope that it is encouraging to you, challenging to us all. And I really hope it helps you to pick up the Apostolic Fathers. Don't be afraid. Uh, uh, don't be afraid of the hundreds of pages I just referred to. Um, do look into them. They're fascinating to read. And again, we're not looking to go back there and go, hey, who reminds me of me? We're looking to go back there to find wisdom and, uh, and fellowship with those who came before us, that we may be able to do the same for those who come after us. May God be praised, and uh, I'll see you next week.